know what? I was going to check this, but if you put it on, I'll be able to get right. level. Okay. All right, you good? Okay. You want to come up here, Thumb? Are you good there? All right. Very good. Right here. I'll get it for you. There's your purse. That's the different. That's the Sunday book. This is the Wednesday paper. We're going to do this tonight. We try to keep everybody confused. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you're not any more confused than the rest of these people, okay? <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Sunday. So we have one more week on Sunday. Is just for Sunday? Yep, one more week of that. But then that paper I gave you is for tonight. Okay. All right? All right, 7.15, welcome everybody. And it is page 41, if you look, if you have your books, if you look at page 41 in your notebooks, you see it's a blank page? Yep. All right, so that's why we were handing out <laughs> pages that are not blank, that start on page 41. So everybody should have received that on the way in. Thank you, Mike, for uh, passing those out. And this is our final session in how to get the most out of your Bible. And I will talk about where we've been and then where we want to go with this uh, final session in just a bit. But I have to start out by asking you all how your Monday went and then telling you how my Monday went. <laughs> and any of you ladies who are in my wife's heart to heart heard her tell this story on Monday night. But on Mondays, Mondays is my day off. And part of my day off routine is to get a list of groceries that my in-laws, Kim's dad and mom, who no longer get out, list of groceries to buy for them at the Meyer in Flat Rock. So they text me a, a list and then I go, I go get it, take it over to their house, stay at their place for about an hour, gives me a chance to see them. That's part of the routine. So I do, I go to uh, Meyer. I've been doing this uh, when, the, when COVID started. Uh, they stopped going out, and then by the time it ended, they are you know in, uh, in their 80s, and they sold, got rid of their car, and they don't go out. Uh, they're pretty, they're shut up. So I kept kept doing it. I park in the same place, so when I go in that Meyer parking lot, I park within a few spaces, the same place all the time. Go in, in there for about 45 minutes, come out with my cart full of stuff, and I am looking at my space, and it's empty. <laughs> Now, I drive a 2011 Mercury Grand Marquis. This is just a big old car. It's got 200,000 miles on it. 
no one in their right mind would want to steal this, this car. But I'm standing there, and I'm certain that this, but you know, you're disoriented. You look around a little bit just to make sure. No, my car is gone. So I have to call the police and, you know, report my, my car stolen. So they go, we go in back into the store. They get the security camera stuff, and they say, hey, is that your car? And I go, yeah, that's my car. They got it on there. And then it's a weird feeling to watch your vehicle being hoisted and driven away. This, like, big pickup, but one of those big pickups with the cab, you know, in between all that, backs up to it. And next thing you know, the back end is up and just takes off with it. And it, yeah, it's just a really weird feeling. And it's not a repossession, as you might imagine, a 2011 <laughs> with 200,000 miles on it. I don't know anything on it. It's paid for. Uh, and, and so I have, no, I have no idea. And I uh, contact, I have my laptop in there. That's the thing I'm most worried about. My computer's in there. I'm not terribly worried about the car, because it could go at any time, but the, the, little, the laptop. And I'm talking to Pastor Larry about, hey, what do I need to do? I call him, what do I need to do to shut down my laptop? Is there anything I can do remotely to shut it down? Turns out there is. If you've got an Apple product, you can lock the thing remotely. So I do, I do that. But then Larry reminds me, hey, don't you have Find My, like Find My iPhone, Find My Laptop? I go, oh, yeah, that's right. I got it on my phone. So I look it up, and I can see <laughs> my laptop moving toward Detroit. <laughs> oh At Meyer with this police officer, and I, and I say, hey, here's my, here's my car, my laptop, man. Here's where it is. And it's got an address there, and he takes it, he takes it down. Kim has to come and get me. We take the groceries to her dad and mom, and the two of us decide, hey, we're going to go to Detroit to that address. What? Now, we're not going to confront anybody. We're not going to go bust it in. <laughs> we just want to see if we, can see if we can see the vehicle. And so we do. We drive to where it is. And as we're pulling on the street, where the, and the address, is of, the address is for a recycling place. So as we pull onto the street where this recycling place, in the distance, we see a car out front that looks like my car. As we get closer, sure enough, and Kim jumps out. She's crazy. <laughs> she, she jumps out. She jumps out because she wants to see if the laptop's still in there, and it, and it was. So the laptop's in there. I have this keyless entry to get into it, and so I get into it, get my laptop, and at least that part is good. But we still want to know what's going on, so we call the Flat Rock Police, who already have this address, but they're not doing anything with it. We're doing something with it, right? <laughs> And the guy I'm talking to is the same guy who was with me at Myers a few hours earlier. And I say, hey, you helped me with my, so we're standing outside the car at this place in Detroit, but they've got the key. And I don't want to go in there and confront anybody and say, why did you steal my, steal my car? And so the guy says, well, you need to call the Detroit police. Well, and this is a lesson that I taught my daughters for years. I taught my daughters and my wife over the years. I say, never take the first answer for anything. Push back. And I say, and I, I taught my girls that. I taught my wife that. And, and I mean it. Because people will tell you anything to get you off the phone. 
right? So, you know, you need to go, whenever I get you need to, that better be good. I need to? And so I say, why don't you call the Detroit police? <laughs> Aren't they more likely to talk to you than to talk to me? Well, no, I can't. I can't call them. I can't. And he's just sort of fumbling around. And I say, you think the Detroit police are going to respond to me if I call them and say, hey, my 2011 200,000-mile car is missing. Oh, wow, a car missing in Detroit, really? <laughs> we'll get right on that. <laughs> so he says, hold on, let me talk to my detective. Puts me on hold for 10, 15 minutes, comes back, says, my detective wants to talk to you. The detective gets on, and these guys are wary of me at this point. They are, because they think, something's up here, man. There's, people don't just randomly come and hook your car up and take it. Something's going on. This, is, this guy's in a dispute with somebody. And so the detective comes in and goes, Mr. Brown, what is going on? I go, someone stole my car. That's, what, <laughs> that's what's going on. And, you, <laughs> and he says, so you don't have any you know, dispute with anybody? You don't have, I go, no. Listen, I'm telling you. This is random from my perspective. I have no earthly idea. But I'm standing out by the car, and you guys should do something about it. And he says, he says, I'm coming. So it took from Flat Rock to there about 25 minutes, but he came. And he goes inside, and he's in there for about 25 minutes, but he emerges with the keys to my, to my car. So here's what happened. Uh, that recycling place has different towing drivers that they use to pick up cars that are going to be junked. Somebody had uh, pulled into the Meyer parking lot and their car died. Now, I've had this happen before with other of my beautiful cars that I, that I drive around. I had one several years ago in the Panera parking lot at, in Woodhaven, and it just died right there and had 250,000 miles on it. Okay, that's the end of that. $300 from a recycling place. They come and pick it up, and, and that's the end of it. So this towing driver, this guy with the big pickup, he actually is a contractor for these, these guys. And he picked up the wrong car. Oh, oh my God. He's supposed to be picking up a Grand Marquis. He sees a Grand Marquis, and he hooks mine up. Now, some of you may be wondering, no, wait a minute. Don't they, don't they have to get in with like a key with the steering column to like, you know, put it in neutral or, or something like that? So here's the other weird piece of this. He's supposed to go get a Grand Marquis, and the owner of that one that had given up the ghost and was supposed to be picked up and recycled said the keys are in the car. They left the keys in the car for him. Well, it happens that I, I leave the keys in my car <laughs> as well. Remember I mentioned the keyless entry? So I've got this keyless entry, so I don't carry the keys around. And I just put them in the, I drop them in the floor, and I use the key to get, and I lock the doors. But here's the other weird piece about it, is when I hit the power locks on this car, it has four doors, three of them lock. <laughs> and sometimes I remember to lock the fourth one manually, but sometimes I don't. So it had a door unlocked, keys in the car, and the guy was coming to get a grand marquee in the Meyer parking lot. What are the chances of all of that? But, that evening, I had my, be my beloved car back and my laptop, and here I've lived to tell about it. For now, there it is. You just told us all how to steal your car. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what? 
and, and, and this, this, crew, all the, this crew would be bright enough to steal that car, okay? If you're going to steal any car, that would be the one you'd want to go after, for sure. <laughs> all right, so how'd your Monday go? Everybody good? Okay. This is our final lesson in how to get the most out of your Bible. Three parts. Uh, survey of the Bible, and then how to understand the Bible was part two. And then, uh, for the last couple of weeks, this final part, you see at the top right-hand corner, part three, applying the Bible. And we saw last week that in applying the Bible, we have to take into consideration the distance between where we are and where those in Bible times uh, were. And in bridging that difference, there are differences of type of book that you're dealing with, genre, remember that, fa that fancy term. And uh, there are also uh, things like uh, customs that apply in one day, but don't necessarily apply in our day, but we can make an equivalent uh, application in our day. And one way uh, to help us apply any passage in the Bible is for us to ask some universal questions that even though you've got all of these differences between the, the circumstances and the times and the customs then versus now, even though that's all true, there are certain things that have not changed. And one of those, of course, is God. And so you can always ask yourself, what does this say about God? And you can always ask yourself, what does this say about people? What does this say about us? What does it say about us as made in God's image? What does it say about us as sinful people in rebellion against God, living in a, a fallen world? And then what does it say about God's grace? You can ask those kinds, and those are universal questions that are operative at all times, no matter what the particular circumstances are. We saw a number of examples of uh, how to interpret and sometimes mis or, excuse me, apply and misapply the Bible. In this final session, we're just going to go through a number of passages and see some of the principles that we can glean from those passages to just give you an idea of how this goes, how to do this going forward on your, on your own. If we have any time left at the end and you have any questions, then I'll be happy to try to answer them. Okay? So page 41 at the top. Principles from Genesis chapter 1. So I've chosen Genesis, I've chosen the book of Ruth, and I've also chosen from the New Testament um, the book of Matthew to glean some principles as these are each different kinds of books. You know, Genesis and Ruth are in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, so they're going to have more distance for us than the book of Matthew, but Matthew is still 2,000 years old. But Matthew is in the New Testament, it's also one of the Gospels. And the Gospels are about the life of Jesus, and I mentioned last week, those have some of their own unique characteristics. So I've chosen those three, Genesis, Ruth, and, and the book of Matthew. So page 41, principles from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, that's the first verse, you go down to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them... Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
All right, so here you have the very beginning of the Bible, very first line in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. And then most of you know in between that, you have more of God's creative activity. But then you have, particularly on day six of the six days of creation, you have the creation of humanity. And that's why we skip down to verse 26 then. And God says, let us make man in our image. Talks about God doing that and the instructions that God gave to, to humanity. So as you look at that now, I'm suggesting that what you want to do with this and with other passages of Scripture is say, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about God? Just right at the very beginning of the Bible, what does it tell us about God? And then what does it tell us about our, ourselves? If you can start to get that right, if you, can, if you can glean as much as possible out of those very beginning verses and chapters of the Bible, then you will have set yourself in good stead for now, building upon that application going forward in, in Scripture. Remember, I, I belabored this for the first several weeks that we were together in this class, where I said the Bible's about three things. You may remember what the, like if one of the three things that the Bible is, is about. It's a what? Okay, that's one of them. Yes. The Lord can take me home. I can die a happy man right now. Someone remembered one of the three things that this is about. Thank you. Yeah, it's about redemption. It's about redemption. And, but, but redemption is necessitated because of the fall. So the Bible is about the fall. And thankfully, it's then also about redemption. And it's about the fall of God's creatures, us. So it's about creation, fall, redemption. And in the creation, God gave an orientation to his world. And he tells us what, who he is and what he expects of us. I kept saying that. Well, this is where he did that where he gives this orientation, who he is and what he expects from us. And if you can get that orientation right then, at the beginning, and you can think about what does that say about God? What does that say about us? And now you can build on that going forward because the Bible's about creation. That is orientation. It's about the fall. That is disorientation. It's about redemption. That is reorientation. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Creation, fall, redemption. And here we're talking about now the first part of that, the creation, the orientation that God gave. And in that orientation, what does it say about God? Well, I give you a couple just to sort of get the juices flowing, and then maybe you can come up with, that's why three and four are blank there for you to fill in. That's why at the top of page 41, this is called application practicum. So I could have just said application practice, but practicum sounds really cool. It sounds academic to me. So you could put genre next to that just for no reason <laughs> other than you learned that word last week. So it means practice, though. We're practicing application. So let's, let's do that for a minute. What's it say about God? Well, it says, first of all, that all of life is God-centered. Is God-centered. All of life is, is centered on God. Notice it's, it's God taking the initiative. God's the creator. In the beginning, God. The first person you meet in the Bible is God. In the beginning, God. And then God is the one 
in control. God is the one uh, taking the, the action and moving the action forward. He's doing the creating. He's doing the speaking. So from the very beginning of the Bible, it's telling you something about God. That life is centered on God. Life is about God. Am, am I right? If you were to get that straight, <laughs> that right there, life is not ultimately about me. It's about God. If you were able to get that straight, if, if, if I'm able to get that straight, if your kids are able to get that straight, then when you have some kind of mishap go on in your life, not if, when, you have some kind of crazy thing going on. You know, I've, I've got an old 200,000-mile car, and so I can laugh, and I can laugh about it because the thing isn't worth much. Now, let's say it was worth a lot, and let's say I had a bunch of payments to make on it. That would be harder to take, wouldn't it? But even so, I should be trying to cultivate the ability to be able to go out with that grocery cart full of groceries, see the empty parking space, and say, God's got this. Life's centered on God. It's not, it's not about me. It's not about what happens. It's not ultimately about what happens to me. And so you, sh from the very beginning, should start then thinking that way. Very beginning of the Bible. All of life is God-centered. So what is God doing in this? And, and how am I going to bring glory to God in this, whatever the this is for me and for you? So that could, that could go on. We don't have time. But I think you see how that has some major application to our lives and every aspect of our lives. All of life is God-centered. Secondly, it teaches us that God has complete authority over his world. God's the creator and so what does that make God as the creator? As the creator, what else does that make him? It makes him the owner. If you make it, you own it. If you create it, it's yours. If you create, you know, if you're an artist and you create, if you create, you create music, then it's yours. And other people can't steal it. You own it. You've got rights to it. If people do use it in an unauthorized way, you have rights to get remuneration out of that, get compensation out of it. You know, we're trying to, uh, for the first of the year, first quarter of the year, trying to redo our podcast, and it's going to be called Discernment Digest. And so we're looking for, you know, just kind of a new intro music and stuff. And so I have this song that I'd like to use for the intro and the outro for it but it's a recorded song, and so I have to get permission. And so I've written to the people who, who I think own it, um, went to the, the artist who's in his 70s now, uh, the guy who made it popular in the late 70s, and he's still alive, and went to his website and wrote to him and said, this is what I'm trying to do, and this is the podcast, and this is what I'd like to do, what do I need to do to get permission, and I haven't heard back. And I don't know if I'm going to hear back. And so now I'm in discussions with Pastor Larry about if we don't hear back, do we ask forgiveness? <laughs> hey, I've got the email I sent to you, okay, I asked for, so we will see. But the point is we, we are trying to do that, and we do want to do that, and that is the right way to do that, because if you're the creator, you're the owner. 
So you're the owner. God has complete authority over the world that he has made. He is authority. He is authorized. He has the right to do as he pleases with what he has made. That's what authorized means. He has, God, as we're going to see in a, a little bit, he has power, but more than power, he has authority. And sometimes we use those as interchangeable, but they're not the same thing. You can have power, but not authority. If you, if you, you know, if I, if I came out of Meyer on Monday, I've got my groceries, and a guy's at my car, and he's got a gun. And he says, give me the keys. And I say, they're in there, and the door's unlocked. <laughs> but he didn't know that, okay? But he's got a gun. Well, he's got power, doesn't he? He's got the gun. But he's not authorized. He doesn't have authority. He has no authorization to use that power in that way. But he's, got, but he's got the gun. He's got the power. So you can have power and not have authority. Unfortunately, you can have authority and not have power. And in our culture, I'm not going to wax political here, but in our culture we have the habit of putting people in positions of so-called authority but not giving them the power to carry it out. I mean, teachers are in that position a lot in our day. They're in a position of authority, but they don't have the same kind of power that teachers had back in my day, I can tell you that. <laughs> They could, they could set us straight when they needed to set us straight. You can't, you're going to get sued, right? Well, that makes it, that just makes it hard. But the point here is just th there's a difference between power and authority, and God has both. He has power, but he's authorized to use it. You think about it, who else would authorize the Creator? In the beginning, God, who would delegate to God authority? Right, so now the, the applications just keep spinning here. So if you've got authority in any realm, and if you're a parent, you've got authority. But it's always delegated authority, isn't it? It's always authority that's derived, derivative, from the authority of, of the ultimate authorizer, God. So God's the one who has given you, delegated to you, this portion of authority. He has all authority. He's delegated to you a portion of that. So now when you carry that out, that authority as a parent, that authority as a teacher, that authority as a, a leader in the church, whatever it is, a police officer, as a politician, you're supposed to look at that as an underling, under God, having been delegated authority under God. And so then carrying that out in a way that pleases the one who gave it. All right, you guys get the idea? You can just... But it means thinking about it. It means thinking about God. It means thinking about what I read. In the beginning, God created. You could just feast on that for a long time. And you could do what my dear wife does. She has this, she has this uh, wide-margin Bible that she writes all over. That's why the march, she's got these margins. She just writes all over the things. She's got all these notes as she's thinking about this stuff. I've got my Bible that I've had for decades. I've never written a single note in my Bible. One, because I can't read my own writing, number one. <laughs> this is true. And so people are just different in how they retain stuff. I type stuff out, remember stuff. She writes it, she just writes it all out. But all of that stuff, if you were to look at her wide margin Bible, that is all of her thinking about 
what she's reading. And we need to learn to cultivate then that ability. What's it say about God? What's it say about us? And then write, and then write those things down. Make application of them. All right. Yes, anything else? For number three and number four there? That this passage says about God? You think? I'm catching you cold. I understand that. Well, here it says, in the beginning, God created. And then he created, it says, the heavens and the earth. So you have God, and then you have everything else. In that one line, notice, there's God and there's everything else. So that means that God is separate from, God is apart from creation. There's God and there's creation. There's the maker and there's what he made. So what does that mean to us? Why is the environment important? And this has modern day application. Why is the environment important? Well, the environment's important because it's the, it's the venue that God has given for us to carry out his work. He tells us, he gives us his purpose, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and so on. So God has given us this to do, so we should then be stewards of the earth that, that God has made. But we need to be very careful that we understand that the earth is not God. So there's God and there's the earth. There's God and there's the environment. But never confuse the two. And it's very easy for people to get so excited about stewardship of the environment that they confuse that. Okay? But God is separate from his creation. He's not part of the creation. So that's why we are not pantheists. A pantheist is somebody, a theist, is, that means God. Pan means all or everything. God is in everything, including God is in the material. He's in somehow animating the material universe according to pantheism. None of that's true. It's why we're not tree huggers, okay? We love the God who made trees. We don't love trees the same way we love God. Everybody good with that, okay? He's apart from his creation. He's not part of it. He's also all-powerful. You could put that in for number four if you want. I said he has all authority, but that's not the same as having all power. But God has all power. He's able to speak the world into existence. You go on to read in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light, and there, was, and there was light. All right, so what does this say about God? First thing you want to ask. What does it say about us? We are completely dependent on God. We are completely dependent on God. God made us, not the other way around. We are because he is. We are only because he is. When the Apostle Paul speaks to philosophers in Athens, Greece, in your New Testament, in Acts chapter 17, he stands up before them and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is not worshipped in temples made by human hands. 
as if, and this is what it says, as if he needed anything. He doesn't, he's telling these philosophers, he, God doesn't need anything from you, from us. Well, that goes all the way back to here, because he's the creator. And he started that way, Paul did. The God who made the earth and everything in it does not dwell in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything from us. And then goes on to say, for he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. But it all goes back to creation, says Paul. So what's it say about us? Man, we're dependent on God. Completely dependent on God. So, friends, lose the idea that you're a self-made man or woman. You're not. I'm not. None of us are. You wouldn't be alive right now and breathing were it not for the grace of God. He gave it. He can take it away. Job said that, did he not? Do you remember Job saying? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're completely dependent on God. Second, we were made to know God's voice. We were made to know God's voice. You know, right in the middle of all that, down toward the bottom, it says, God blessed them and said to them. God talks to Adam and Eve. Well, when you read that, you're in the very first chapter of the Bible, and you see this God who is and who makes and who is central, has all authority and all power. We're dependent on him. And then he talks to the first man and woman. He said to them. And they're supposed to know what's going on. They're supposed to know who this is. Be able to respond to it. Yeah. Now think about that for a minute. What? Why is humanity in the form of the first man, first woman, male and female, Adam and Eve, as we come to know them, how are they able to respond to God's voice? Where did they get the ability to do that? They've got the built-in ability to do that. We were made to know God's voice. Well, again, this, moves, this, this has contemporary application, friends. What, what do you think with regard to people knowing God? Do, pe do people today, do people know God? It's a tricky question in some ways. But you know what the Bible's answer to that is? Yeah, everybody knows God. Not everybody wants to know God. In fact, by nature, everybody does not want to know God, according to the Bible. But everybody was made to know God. So when you come to the New Testament, you come to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32. Paul gives this magnificent treatise saying that although they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. But they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And then he goes on to talk about what happens when people do that. We're living in what happens now. Well, now we don't know the difference between men and women. We don't know the difference between what marriage is supposed to be and what just friendships are supposed to be between women and women and, and men and men. We're completely confused because we've abandoned these foundational 
So do people know God? Yeah, they know God, and they know God. They were made to know God's voice. This is why when you go to your Christmas holidays with perhaps some family members who don't know the Lord, you know, you should not be the person who comes there and beats anybody over the head with a Bible, okay? Don't be that guy. But it's Christmas for heaven's sake. You know, you might look for opportunities to point to Christ. And if you do that, even in the most, in the softest way, you're going to get people who say, there, go, there you go on your religious thing. And you know, religion's a really personal thing, they say. Religion's a really personal thing. Now, I can talk to you, that same person will talk to you at that family event about anything. But we can't talk about God. Go figure. And yet we were made to know God. We were made to hear from God. We were made to talk back to God. We were made for that. The Bible tells us why we go, go into the hiding mode now where this becomes personal and I can't talk about it anymore. You know, when, when sin enters the world, the fall, now the man and the woman who were made to talk to God and to hear from God start hiding from God. So that's what you've got now. We've got people come into the world and we come into the world hiding from God. Yeah, you can get a lot out of just a few phrases here out of <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, right? No, really. It's, and, and, then you, and then lo and behold, you move forward in the Bible and you start seeing, wow, creation, the orientation starts showing up. And then you start seeing how it became twisted and disoriented very easily. All right, so what else? What's it say about us? Well, we're made in his image, and as you read in Genesis chapter 1, forgive the grammar, ain't nobody else made in his image except humanity. So we're unique. Humanity is unique. Humanity is unique, made in God's image. I think I said, you know, early on in our class here, hey, save the whales. I have, no, I have nothing against the whales. Okay. But, but save, the ba save the babies first. Prioritize the babies. Prioritize the human babies. They're more important than the whales. As important as the whales may be. They do not compare to the infinite worth of those made in the image of God. And this made unique and in his image that means a priority of humanity over everything else. And it also... As you look at the way the Bible does this, you got, he makes, it says male and female, he makes these two, and from these two come everyone else. We are all related. All of us are related. Every human being is related, according to the Bible. And equal. So the Bible teaches this from the very beginning. And, and so some really, really important things flow out of these first chapters. We are unique, made in his image. Here's a, here's a fourth one. You know, God speaks to them. He said to them, here's what you do. You be fruitful. You increase. You fill the earth. You subdue it. You rule. Here's what that means. We have purpose. We have purpose. We were put here for a reason. God gives you what it is we're supposed to be about and what we're supposed to be doing. And then the Bible tells us how it went south and how we started doing other things. 
and giving ourselves and our time and our talent and our treasure to other things. But, but he has given us purpose, and we have purpose today in reorienting, redeeming God's world back to its original design. All right, here's some other principles from Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 2 and uh, verse 7, you see it in parentheses there? It says there that uh, as it focuses on the creation of the first human being, it says that uh, God formed Adam's body from the dust of the ground. That's what it says. And then it says, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So in that one verse, Genesis 2 and verse 7, you have Adam as having been made physically body, but also he is spiritual, a soul. So he's body and spirit, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. And so here's how I have that filled out. As God's unique creation, we are both material and immaterial. You could say physical and spiritual, but material, matter, body, immaterial, not matter, spirit. But human beings are both of those. Well, all right, that's what the Bible teaches. We are both of those. Well, what does that mean now? Tease that out for application. Your problems, my problems, are never only physical. I heard you guys, and I know uh, Terry, he won't mind me, he won't mind me talking about this. I heard you guys talking earlier about uh, Terry's struggle with MS, right? Right? And physical. But whenever we, ha we have any kind of a physical struggle, whatever it is, it's never only physical because we are both material and immaterial. So with that physical struggle is going to come some spiritual struggle as well. What, how am I going to face this? How am I, what's my attitude going to be toward this? What's my attitude going to be toward myself, toward God, toward others? Am I right? Is that... I was going to say Job. Okay, Job, yeah, Job, right. You know, and that's why we've got a whole book in the Bible that talks about that. You know, physical struggle, but the spiritual struggle that goes with it. So when you're struggling, you don't just need medication. Now, notice I say just. You may well need medication. You may have some, you know, you may have some things going on in your physical brain that require some adjustment. Medication. So I'm not an anti-medication person. But I also know that we are more than just our physical bodies. And our minds are more than just our brains. Sometimes we use mind and brain as if they're the same thing. Brain is the physical component of the mind. But the mind is made up of the brain and the spirit. And both of those affect our thinking. If I don't spiritually have the right perspective, I won't think properly, even if my brain's just fine. So I need to address both of those. It's just one application of the fact that we are material and immaterial. We're created for community. Since we are created in God's image, 
who is three persons in relationship with one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, remember there it says, let us make man. You guys, did you guys catch that in our image? So we then can only experience fulfillment as image bearers. That's what the blank is there, image bearers, as we live our lives building up one another in love. So if God is made, God is community by his very nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's never been lonely. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He's had fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And if we're made in the image of a God who has that kind of loving fellowship, then he made us. This is why he says to the man in chapter 2, it is not good that the man, you guys remember, be what? Be alone. Why? Because he's made for community. We're community. Father, Son, and Spirit. So he makes the woman, and the two are able to be fruitful and multiply. So we're made to be social beings. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to isolate ourselves. We were not made for that. God is not like that. All right, top of page 42. One flesh. God created men and women who marry to represent and experience in the most intimate way the unity that exists in the eternal community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God pronounces on the first couple, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and he will cleave to his wife and these two will be one flesh. One flesh. And then as you go into your New Testament, you see Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage is designed to represent the relationship between Christ and his church, for example. And so here you have God, a God who is in loving fellowship with God the Father, Spirit, and Son. He makes men and women to be in that kind of loving relationship with one another, and it's supposed to be the most intimate way that we express the unity that exists in God. So, the physical relationship between a man and a woman is a, is a physical representation of that. But it's just one, it's just one representation of the unity that the marriage relationship is to exhibit physical. Another and very important one is that husbands and wives are to be one in purpose. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one in purpose. Are the Father, Son, and Spirit ever at cross purposes? You know, does the Father ever want to do something the Son says, nah? Right? They're never at cross purposes. They're always one in purpose. And so husbands and wives are to strive to be one in purpose. So many couples are, are just, they're just, wrote, you know, they, they got their oars in the water, but they're not going at the same time. <laughs> they're not going in the same direction. One in purpose. Takes a lot of work, but it's what we were made for. And it takes a lot of work primarily because of the entrance of sin. Satan's tactics, speaking of the entrance of sin, 
Satan's goal has always been to deceive us and to cause us to reject God. But in Christ, we can be victorious. So, what you have is those opening chapters, God talks, they listen, they interact with God. They, they have fellowship with God, interacting, hearing the voice of God, following the voice of God. And then you come to chapter 3, and all of a sudden there's a new voice. So if you're, you're just reading those opening chapters carefully, you're going, okay, God, this is all God-centered, God-created, made for God, we're dependent on God, you know, all this stuff. And then you come to chapter 3, and somebody else says to the woman, and the serpent said to the woman, and you should be going, uh-oh. Somebody else is talking. Surely she's not going to listen. And the woman said to the serpent, oh, let's have a conversation. Well, we got troubles now. And he deceives. What does he, he says, she listens and he deceives. God, you thought God was good. Turns out he's holding back on you. And the reason he tells you you can't eat of this tree in the middle of the the garden is because he knows that in the day you eat of that, you will be like God. You guys remember that? You really want to be fulfilled. This is what you need. Let me repeat that. Genesis chapter 3, Satan says to humanity, you really want to be fulfilled. You need something other than God. Now, am I right? Am I telling the truth here or am I exaggerating? that that same theme has been spoken throughout all of human existence. You have, a, you have exactly the same thing being said today and a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago that was said in Genesis chapter 3. If you really want to be fulfilled, you need something other than God. And that might be another spouse, that might be you know, fame, that might be money, that might be any number of things, but God ain't enough. So chase this that I'm dangling out here for you. The history of humanity, but it's deceptive. And so we reject God. We rationalize our rejection of God. One of the first results of sin entering the world was the tendency to rationalize our disobedience. And put the blame on someone else. So now, okay, we've done this. And we're hiding. And we hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. That's what it says in Genesis 3. They hear the sound of the Lord God. How do they know the sound? How do they know what it sounds like for God to show up? Because apparently God has shown up. And God would talk to them and have fellowship with them. And they knew this. And they hear it and they go, oh no. We've done what he told us not to do. Here he comes. I know. Let's hide. He'll never find us. He's just the creator after all. And then God says, Adam, what have you done? You know, and um, he says, well, I was, I was naked and so I hid. 
But the interesting thing is the Bible tells us that they had already made coverings for themselves. The truth is they weren't physically naked. But they're morally ashamed. And they're hiding. And so they hide from God. And God says, so who told you you were naked? That actually had never come up, Adam. We had, we had never actually compared you to a clothed person. <laughs> okay? So how did that come up? <laughs> right? So it's, it's shame morally represented by the covering physically, the fig leaf trying to cover sin, which people have been doing for millennia as well. And then Adam says, okay, it's the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. And God says to the woman, you know, what, what are you doing? He says, well, you know, the serpent. So the woman, the serpent, and in both of those, it's ultimately blaming God. And this goes on today. You do it. I do it. When we sin, we make excuses. We rationalize for our sin. And we blame it on someone else. We blame it on our circumstances. Rather than looking where it really resides, ultimately is in the heart. And out of this comes the battle of the sexes. Because of sin, the relationship between Adam and Eve and all married couples thereafter has been impacted in a negative way. So the reason you have to work so hard at that one flesh relationship now to being to having one purpose and rowing in the same direction that God has made for you. The reason you have such difficulty goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It's not, it's not just the natural differences between male and female. We do that a lot. We say, oh man, men, you know, I had a sermon on this recently. Um, there was a guy years ago that uh, wrote a book, made a zillion dollars on public television, holding seminars on his book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, right? And the idea is that, you know, we're just from totally different planets. Well, does the Bible teach we're from totally different planets? We're, made, we're both made in the image of God. Yes, there are differences for sure between men and women. They're comical sometimes, to be sure. But we have a lot more in common than we do in, in, in terms of our differences. We are made in the image of God. We are made to do the same thing together, move together in the same direction, and each play our roles in that. But sin causes the battle of the sexes to blame, to point the finger at each, each other, and to create the distance between us to be much greater than it really is. All right, any questions about any of that? I mean, you get the idea of what we're trying to do? What's it say about God? What's it say about us? So, I've got a full seven minutes <laughs> to go through the book of Ruth and a little bit of Matthew. So, I'm going to turn to page 43. I'm not going to talk about these the way I talked about those because I wanted those to give you the, the idea. But I will give you the answers to these as we go through, okay? You good? Here we go. Top of page 43. We live in a worldly culture, so we have to take every precaution not to be influenced by the values that contradict God's will for our lives. And 
you see the verses there, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, compared to other verses. So you can look those up and you can see where this idea came from then, okay? As fathers, particularly, we must always seek to avoid making decisions that can make our whole family vulnerable and lead to devastating consequences. That's what happened in the book of Ruth. Regardless of the difficult circumstances we face in life, we must always face these realistically and with humility and wisdom and determination to do the right thing. Humility, wisdom, and determination to do the right thing. When as Christians we face devastating tragedies, we must not allow our circumstances to destroy our hope for the future. When we face difficult circumstances, we should consider this an opportunity to evaluate more realistically the extent that we are free from worshiping false gods. Even when we are spiritually and psychologically weak, spiritually and psychologically weak, we must still trust God to use us to impact others. As Christians, we should reflect God's character in our lives, not only because of His grace in saving us from our sins, but in order to encourage others to walk in God's will. Encourage others to walk in God's will. When we are going about our daily routines, it shouldn't surprise us that events happen in our lives that are uniquely designed by God to achieve His purposes. Uniquely designed by God to achieve His purposes. As our culture becomes more and more permeated with secular values that contradict true biblical values, we must determine to become more and more like Jesus Christ in the way we treat others in our families, in our churches, and in the world of business. Our families, our churches, and in the world of business. As members of a human family structure, we must do all we can to encourage those who have special needs, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Encourage. As parents and older family members, we should be available to give advice and counsel. Advice and counsel to our younger generation without imposing our personal opinions and subjective judgments. In order to lay the groundwork for a successful marriage, we must be committed to moral purity prior to marriage. Moral purity prior to marriage. In order to develop noble character, in order to develop noble character, we must always demonstrate respect and concern for one another. When we're planning a marriage ceremony, we should, if at all possible, have a public event that's a godly witness to others, demonstrating that as a couple, we are committed to one another. As long as God gives us life. That's what we see at the end of Ruth when she and Boaz marry. As Christians, we should use this beautiful love story in Ruth to remind ourselves of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from the book of Matthew. No matter what our sinful condition, we should accept total forgiveness by believing in the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Total forgiveness. As believers, we are always to extend mercy and grace toward those living out of the will of God. 
This was Joseph toward his wife Mary when he thought she was pregnant by, he didn't know what the story was. But he extends mercy and grace. When we present our treasures to God, we should always use these material gifts to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Magi did. Material gifts to worship and praise. In order to have forgiveness of sins and to live in fellowship with God, we must experience true repentance. Forgiveness of sins, live in fellowship with God. When we're tempted to violate God's will, we should follow Jesus' example and use Scripture to thwart Satan's efforts the way Jesus did. His example. In order to live life in the will of God, we must faithfully follow and experience the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to, as I say, look at the verses that are in parentheses for those so that you can see you know, how those are derived or from where those are derived. All right, it is 8, 14 and a half. We have 30 seconds left for questions. Oh, really? Anybody got any, any questions? Yes, and anybody that needs to go, thank you. Thank you for a good semester. We're done. We will start back up in January. I forget the exact date. It's like the third Wednesday in January, and our class is going to be on evangelism, uh, the gospel message, and how to, how to share it. Okay? Yes? Oh, what's the next the class? Okay. Well, there it is. And also how I exercise the gift of prophecy. I, will, uh, I knew what the question was before it even happened. Everybody good? Okay, thanks.
Terry has a question you want to ask. 